Hello and welcome back to the LT Guitarist podcast, the podcast for musicians, whether they be hobbyists or semi-professionals, to um, do that, make music, and ideally, you know, make money doing so. Um, I did say I would start scripting the intros, but apparently I'm a liar. I'm your host, Liam Taylor, also known as LT Guitarist, musician and music educator from Cambridge, in the UK. I am sat not outdoors but near the outdoors so it might still be a little bit windy coming at you halfway through summer 2020. Took a little bit of a break from the podcast to try and get my uh, ducks in a row in terms of the lockdown, in terms of freelance work, all of which seems to have dried up and there wasn't an awful lot I could do about that. Oh well, today we have episode seven, and episode seven is a special one. I mean, they're all pretty special, but this one was actually recorded in 2016, if you can imagine such a time. This episode is an interview with John Wheeler. You might know John Wheeler better as Barley Scotch, frontman for Hayseed Dixie. This interview was originally recorded for Pro Tips for Independent Bands, a music business tutorial series for stabpanda.com. Pro Tips is still basically a thing, but we don't really have plans to release new episodes for a while, so I thought it would be nice to kind of repurpose some of these old interviews, which, having listened back to them, they're really good, and I've forgotten how much of this interview in particular I use in my day-to-day music management music creation life. Uh, Here's a list of some of the topics we talk about. Spending money as a band, touring, playing to no one, songwriting, music promo, and making mistakes. This interview is actually uh, my good friend Cy Pettit, occasional musical endeavor collaborator, occasional conversation hat podcast collaborator. He's doing the interview with John Wheeler today because, of course, we used to share hosting duties for pro tips, so some of these interviews are going to be with Sai. Before we get into the interview, I'm just going to drop a few URLs in here, a few plugs. If you value this interview, if you find it as helpful as I did, then please give us a positive review on whatever podcast app you are using. And it doesn't sound like much, but actually the positive reviews is what really helps the uh, podcasts grow. If you are one of those lucky people that has money, I would encourage you to go to my Ko-Fi account, ko-fi.com forward slash ltguitarist, you can buy me a coffee and I will use those funds to actually buy coffee and probably also RAM, maybe a new processor for the PC. You know, I need to buy the stuff that musicians need to buy. There's also a pretty funny Ko-Fi intro. You can go check that out. You learn a little bit more about me, my practice and what Ko-Fi is. And the last little plug, Uh, please do visit the LT Guitarist website, ltguitarist.com, for more information about me, uh, music releases, link to the Discord, all that good stuff. I need to stop talking. Over to Cy, interviewing John Wheeler for Pro Tips for Independent Bands in 2016. Thanks for coming, John. It's wonderful to have you here. So you're embarking on a UK tour next month. Uh, you're playing original material this time around. What kind of, of a toll can touring take on someone who does this regularly? Like, What things do you sort of have to be aware of when you're... Just to make sure, you know, you stay sane. Oh, man. Uh, 
trying to get good nutrition. That's important. Mm. Uh, you can definitely tell if you're in a poor town or a rich town or a poor or rich neighborhood by what kind of restaurants are on offer. <laughs> we usually try to have it where everybody gets their own hotel room. And it's a little bit of a luxury, but uh, I think it's kind of necessary because more than health, trying to just keep everybody in the, in the unit's attitudes roughly on the same page uh, is one of the harder things. I mean, mm. I think a lot of people don't realize I look at it like we play the shows for free, but what I get paid for is all the logistical stuff I have to do to get to the show. Mm. If I decided to walk around a corner from my house, like up to y'all's pub or something, I don't really care if I get paid for it or not, you know, sort me mm. out a beer or two, whatever. It's easy <laughs> but if I've got to go spend the night someplace and travel to it and sit in traffic and deal with airport people who have no sense of humor, they're aware of, you know, and baggage handlers who've had all the joy of life drained from their being, mm -hmm. then, then that's what I got to get paid for is navigating all that, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, yeah, everybody being able to sort of sit on the bowl for as long as they want without feeling like there's somebody out there waiting to brush their teeth or whatever, <laughs> over a course of a few days, that kind of stuff will, will completely get you wanting to rip each other's throats out. Mm. And that kind of stuff then bleeds into your show. If everybody's kind of assed up a half an hour before the gig because they were having to be crammed three people into a travel lodge room, mm -hmm. that really starts to affect everything about the show you do, you mm -hmm. know, and your attitude about it. So we don't tend to ever, even with Hasty, we don't ever take tour buses around. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't really see the point. Unless you've got a huge crew, I would rather drive a car or two and stay in a hotel every night than to be driving around in a bus and sleeping on a bus, mm -hmm. just from a pure comfort level. Um, there's also the issue of what buses cost. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't, I've, I haven't priced one up in a long time, but you got to pay the driver, say, two fifty, three hundred a day. You got to rent the bus, two or three hundred a day. You got to put fuel in it. I mean, you're going to spend close to a thousand a day keeping a bus on the road. That's what you're. Mm -hmm. By the time it's all said and done, you got insurance on, you lease it, and you, you know, mm -hmm. and you have off days. You prorate it over the gigs. You're gonna, you're gonna spend about a grand a day on a bus. I mean, you can get four or five travel lodge rooms and a couple of cars cheaper than that. Mm. And I think it's more comfortable for everybody. I think for, I don't know why it is that everybody thinks, okay, we're going to go on tour. We got to get a bus. I've never understood that. I mean, back before I did Hayseed, when I was in my twenties and I played with um, just side guy playing fiddle for country guys around the States. Mm. Uh, I did a few tours where we were all running buses and I thought it was miserable. I thought it was like a factory job. The only time buses are kind of cool is if you're playing a festival, because there's never hotels close to festival sites. Mm. And it means that you can kind of, pull up there and stay on site and hang out with the other musicians and stuff. In, in those scenarios, it can be kind of cool, but I still think you'd be better off with a camper van. Mm -hmm. That to me is one of the most important things when you're, when you're doing a tour is to try to keep some, everybody in the, in the, in the traveling party, having some degree of personal autonomy. Mm -hmm. So that's the other downside of a bus is that everybody has to make a group decision about every single thing, like mm -hmm. where you're going to stop and eat, where you, where you're going to stop and pee, what time you're going to leave, what time you're going to, go to the venue what time you're going to meet up to go to the next show mm. there has to be group consensus on every little detail mm. and when you have to do that with a group of five six seven people it's like going into a video rental shop back when such things existed yeah and trying to get consensus on what to watch for every decision that has to be made of course the whole day so i would actually say to anybody starting out you know Try to do your tours in cars, you mm. know, or, or get a little van, put a trailer on the back of it or something to haul your kit around. Mm. And um, also try to keep your kit as minimal as possible. Mm. I mean, do you really, unless you're doing a lot of alternate tunings or something, do you really need six guitars? Mm. You know, could, yeah. you, could you accomplish it with two? 
And if you can try to do it with two, you know, mm. and try to do your own, your own stuff. Every extra person that you add to a touring party is another personality, another attitude, another ego mm. that has to be dealt with and can unbalance the other part of the crew. So Hazy Dixie, known for recreating quite a lot of rock and pop in a blue, bluegrass style, although I've heard that you, you hate that word. Bluegrass. Well, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it's a word that most people know what it means. So yeah. why not use it? I mean, you, t- you say bluegrass, they, they they know that you mean like banjos and mandolins and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I just kind of call it hillbilly music. I, I was never intended to do straight bluegrass when when we started the group. I was just trying to reimagine certain tunes as if they had been done by Appalachian Mountain people. Fair that's enough. where my, my family comes from. And once we got into it, I, I never thought it would turn into a career. I thought it'd be like a one-off recording and it would just kind of be a, a, an odd little curiosity. But uh, I don't think I had an appreciation for how that when you do a, a song in a completely different genre like that, you mm-hmm. you bring the lyric to the forefront and you also kind of bring the structure of the song to the forefront. So it kind of has to be a, a relatively well-written song or else it doesn't work. Mm. You kind of demonstrate whether it's a good song or not by, by, by swapping the genre. It's interesting that people want to hear well-known songs as close to the originals when you know people do covers and stuff. Um, but I mean, you've made a career doing more or less the total opposite. Is there is there a sort of a secret to that, or is it a case of doing what you love and hoping people dig it? I don't. I think probably it's it's a matter of whatever you're playing and you're having fun playing while you're drinking beer. Other beer drinkers will probably have fun listening to. I, if there's any kind of a formula to apply, you know. Mm. Uh, I will say most of the things I've done, I'm 45, I've been trying to play music for about 30 years. Most of the things that I've done that I really labored over, spent a month trying to write the song or, or work out an arrangement or something, tend to be the things that when I get finished with them, people will say, yeah, that's pretty cool. The mm-hmm. things that you sort of bust off in 10 or 15 minutes and you're peeing your pants laughing while you're doing it, mm-hmm. those are the ones that people go, yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think there's something to be said for for not overthinking stuff too much mm-hmm. and, and trying to freeze the design from when you have the idea to do it. And, and that gets difficult when you start getting into a professional career with it because you have record label people and publicists and other people in the group and yourself as well who start thinking, okay, how do we repeat our last success? And you start trying to figure out like what you said. Like the difficult second album. Is there a model? Is there a a formula? And how can we then apply things to a formula? I think when you do that, you make a big mistake because then it becomes a process of like an assembly line and there's Mm. not any... There's not any fun in it anymore. Mm. So trying to keep it spontaneous and fun when it becomes your occupation uh, can be difficult. Mm. <laughs> you know? But I think that's that's the the goal anyway, is to try to try to keep the same attitude you had before it became your full-time occupation. Mm. So there's no end of like adverts for websites and services claiming that unsigned bands need to spend their money on their service in order to make it. What is it smart to spend money on? And at what point should you in your in your career should you think about spending money on things here's an example i mean uh, there's a girl around town here in cambridge who sent me a a facebook message a while back and she said yeah i've just got this new record i just recorded it you know we did in this nice studio i think we spent eight or nine grand or something she said she spent making this record and hiring hiring people she's like i got about a thousand pounds left in a budget you know how should i promote it and i was thinking to myself oh man i wish you'd talk to me before you recorded it because you kind of got that backwards. Mm. You probably should have spent a grand recording it and eight or nine grand marketing it. I mean, I would say from my experience, 
that when you're, when you're doing an album or you're doing a film or you're writing a book or you're making cheesecake or brewing a beer or whatever, you're, you're taking a product to market and mm -hmm. people have to know it exists. I mean, build it and they will come to me is the stupidest phrase ever uttered. Mm -hmm. Build it and it'll sit there on your shelf. You know, nobody's going to know, nobody's going to buy it if they don't know it exists, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say 85, 90% of, of what you, what I do in the music business is, is marketing it maybe 10% of it's actually creating the product. And that's not what I would have thought when I was a high school kid sitting in my bedroom trying to learn how to play, mm. you know, and listening to records because music is a very aspirational thing. And we all want to think of um, of it as being like this burst of passion and then somebody else somebody else takes it from there. Well, if somebody else takes it from there to market it, they're going to take most of your money, mm. you know. And not that it's all about money. I mean, if I was trying to get rich, if I'd have spent even half the energy on being a property developer or something that I've spent trying to market music products, I'd probably be a much financially richer guy, mm. but I would have had a lot less experience. I don't have mm. any, any regrets about any of it. But I, I would say that what you should do is, is try to make your record as cheaply as you can do it and still maintain a reasonable quality level. I mean, you mm. don't have to go to some super fancy studio anymore to make a decent sounding record, unless mm. you're wanting to cut string sections or something. And maybe you mm. ought to save that till you've got a decent budget. Mm. At the end of the day, like I was saying about cutting a rock grass record and, and you put the song front and center, Really, if if you've got a great song and you've got it with, with a pretty decent performance, you could record it in a phone booth and it would still move people. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, every breath you take could have been recorded in a bedroom on an acoustic guitar and it would still be a, a hit song. Mm. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's 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 a hit song. It just mm. is. That little guitar riff and his vocal over the top of it is it it works. Mm. You know. Uh, I've never heard their demo of it. I'm sure there is one somewhere, and I'm sure it's great. You know, that's a very simple recording, actually. Mm. A, a lot of hit records are very simple recording. If you're having to hide behind a big production, then maybe your song isn't there. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If it was all about technical perfection, you know, Stones wouldn't have a career. Mm. Some of those records are really sloppy, but they got a vibe, you know? So I think you should try to make the record, as I say, as cheaply as you can make it and still have it sound reasonable. And then take most of your money and spend it on trying to market it. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that, depending on what genre you're in. But I would say, if you're going to release a record, you should always try to hire at least a proper publicist to put mm -hmm. it out there. And you should, you know, try to get reviews. And you need, you need to do this at the same time that you're putting a tour together. I mean, mm -hmm. it, the analogy I would use to use a sports analogy is like if you watch a football match, you can see a team that plays really well but scores badly. Mm -hmm. Or you can have a team that plays kind of average but just scores really well because they're positioned real well mm -hmm. whenever there's an opportunity to put it through the net to mm -hmm. actually score mm -hmm. so to do that when you're marketing a product the, the product has to be commercially available at the same time that you're doing promotion for it mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying yeah when people say things like yeah i've got a new record i put it up on Bandcamp or whatever so i've released a record no you haven't released a record you've made it available mm -hmm. there's a big difference between making it available and releasing it mm -hmm. releasing it implies making it available and putting a promotional drive behind it. Mm. So, I mean, I think the minimum that you need when you try to release an album is a, a publicist who's going to work the, the print media and the, and the digital side of things. And there's lots of them, you know, you can go shop around. I mean, a, a good one just for the UK, you might get one for 1500 in pounds. You, mm. you can always negotiate, you know, mm. if they quote a price of three grand at you go back and say, can you do it for 15? I mean, you know, mm. it's like trying to buy a car or something. Don't yeah. or a piece of antique. Don't, don't go pay them what they offer, <laughs> but um, you need at least a publicist and, and somebody who's booking you a tour that puts you in front of some people at the same time this is happening. Mm. And you, you probably wouldn't 
be doing bad to try to get a radio plugger to sling it around a little bit as well. There's a, a lot of options. I mean, people talk about digital distribution, I, but I'm still not convinced that that the majority of the population out there goes on YouTube looking for new music. I think they go on things like YouTube looking for something that they already know. Mm. And traditional radio still matters. It mm. really does. I mean, I notice it. I mean, uh, you know, if if Chris Evans plays one of our tracks on his breakfast show on Radio 2, it is not subtle. Everything mm. lights up, man. The Amazon rankings and the iTunes and the website and the Facebook, everything lights up. Mm for a couple of days, you know, and there will only probably be a handful of people in, in, in any given country who are into the music you're into, unless you're trying to make a straight pop record, mm. in which case you definitely need to hire a radio plugger. Yeah. Try to keep to release an album in the UK. I think you need five, six grand in your budget mm. just to hire subcontractors to promote it. And that's all a record label really does anymore is hire subcontractors and they'll front the money for it, mm. but then they'll take a huge piece back on the backside. So you really need to be able to, if you're a band or a solo artist or whatever, you need to be able to come up with probably eight or 10,000 pounds mm. to make your record, get the packaging done and hire people to then go promote it somewhere around there, you know, and that's a reasonable amount of money, but it's not insurmountable. If you got a group of four or five guys, you ought to be able to each pony up a couple of grand for the promotion of it. And then don't sign to a record label. I mean, you can go to any number of distributors. There's only a handful of bricks and mortars retailers, H&B and there's Amazon that's going to mm. sell vinyl and, mm. and physical CDs. Mm. You don't need a record label. The only time you need a record label anymore, like you, there's only about three, there's Universal and Sony and Warner Bros. That's it. Mm. The only time you need one of those guys is if you think you're the next Adele, you know, mm. and, and you're doing really right down the middle pop music. Mm then maybe, yeah, okay, you need the kind of marketing power they're going to put up so that eventually you can get a Pepsi sponsorship and make all your money selling perfume. Mm. <laughs> because you're going to give them the record in exchange for them spending a lot of money. And that's that's maybe an okay trade mm. if you think that you're going to sell arenas. But if you think you're anything else, and most people are anything else, mm. then like any business, keep your overhead low, but but you've got to spend marketing money to let people know that it exists. So I, I to just to distill it down, I'd say try to write the best songs possible. Mm. Um, try to perform them with some spontaneity and some guts. But but if you got to err on one side or the other, err on the side of a stripped down guitar, bass, drums recording mm -hmm. that's quite simple, but that puts the energy across. Make that as cheaply as possible, and then spend your money promoting it. Oh, and and hire somebody who knows what they're doing to take the pictures. <laughs> There's nothing to make you look, you know, unprofessional like shit promo pictures. Do you, do you speak from experience in yes. that regard? <laughs> hire, hire somebody who knows what they're doing with lighting if you don't have somebody in your unit that does to take proper good photos of you. Fair enough. And then all, I would also say when you write your bio, you write your press release for your record, one page, you know, two or three paragraphs. When you write that, you were writing 90% of your record reviews. Most of the people that, that, that in say any of the magazines or the websites or whatever, they will quote your press release damn near word for word and then chuck their name down at the end. I've watched it happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so you're writing your own reviews. Yeah. And nobody cares about your deep poetic soul. Nobody wants to know if he grew up in a small village outside of Peterborough and he spent mm -hmm. many hours working in the fields and also practicing his story. Nobody gives a crap. Man, <laughs> make it, you're doing a show, make it entertaining. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after he created the internet, he then decided to go out and he discovered he was working on, you know, cold fusion in Denmark when he met this girl and, you know, make up yeah. a story, man. Yeah. Make it fun. Mm. This is the entertainment business. Entertain mm. people. They got lots of stuff they could spend their money on a given day. You know, some guy mm. lays brick all day long. He's got his own problems.
problems. He goes mm. home to some spouse he doesn't love anymore. And he, you know what I mean? He's doing a job that sucks. And so he comes out to your show or he sees your, your bio come across his feed and some record of you. He wants to say to himself, I want to drink with that guy. <laughs> he doesn't want to say, Oh, maybe he's going to tell me about the meaning of life. No, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Making mistakes is super important, but some mistakes can set you back quite a lot. Is there anything you particularly regret or anything you always sort of see fellow musicians do that they really shouldn't? Well, in a, okay, in a live scenario, I think the worst thing that you can ever do is, number one, apologize for making a mistake because chances are people in the audience won't even know that you did. Mm. You know, if, you, if you're playing something and you screw it, go, oh, whoops, sorry. No, don't do that. Mm. Play it again. Do it three times in a row and act like you meant to do it. Because mm. most people are not even going to know the difference, mm. you know, unless they're like, some guys in Dusseldorf who got your album and study every note and come back to the show and say, you played the guitar solo slightly different in the third measure. You'll get a couple of those yeah. guys. <laughs> Maybe you humor those guys, but the rest of the people, yeah, don't ever, don't ever get up on the stage and apologize for when something goes wrong. You know, if, if one of your monitor wedges cuts off, don't start yelling at the sound guy through the microphone in front of the audience. Mm. Just deal with it. When you get an opportunity, lean over to the monitor guy and say, dude, I got a problem. But try to never involve the audience in technical problems, mm. unless it's just extreme, in which case, make a joke out of it. Don't ever, ever act like you're being flustered or thrown out of your game when you're on the stage. Mm. I mean, we, we played the Sonosphere Festival a few years ago, and we were the sort of after party. It was when they had Metallica and Slayer, and, and they, they'd all played the main stage, and we were like the... The only thing going on the festival site at midnight was from or 11, maybe. It was when Metallica stopped, then we kicked up for an hour in the kind of big after marquee. It was a big marquee, how like 10,000 people it was gigantic. Hmm. Um, and we walk out on stage, we play the first two or three songs. The stage, the, the whole tent's packed. Everybody's just come off the Metallica experience. The place is rocking. And then right in the middle of the third song, the bass stops working, some kind of short, you know? Oh, man. And um, okay. So I start playing. Skinny when I met her and open the jar and I get through two or three of the singer songwriter comedy songs, you know, just mm -hmm. trying to hold the crowd while Jake, our bass player, is over there with a soldering iron. The sound man's up there dicking around with this and that. They still ain't got it. We went 20 minutes with no bass and I just had to play them acoustic guitar comedy songs and an abduction probe. And I'm thinking, dude, just go borrow somebody's bass. Do something. Mm. You know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, okay, I can, I can, I can, I can have the interlude in the middle of the set here for a little while, but people are starting to get restless. They're starting to go give us some rock, and I'm thinking, Shisa. Mm. But finally, yeah, he just borrowed somebody else's electric bass because he usually plays this acoustic guitar bass. Oh, yeah. You know, he borrowed somebody else's, and we got through the rest of the set. But yeah, that that was a that was a moment because I really wanted to go out and rock hard at mm. that one, you know, and. So yeah, for a third of the set, I'm reduced to being a singer songwriter. You know that was mm. kind of weird, especially in that context. You know, mm. but again, I never, I never said anything about it. I never said to the audience, "Oh, our bass guitar stopped working, so I'm stuck doing this." Because I thought, well, what, what's the upside? If I tell them something went wrong, what they're going to sympathize with me? They're going to give mm. me a hug. That's not what they're there for. Mm. So just do it like it's part of the show. Mm. And to that same subject, I've always thought it was really dumb if you play a show. And there's very few people in the audience mm. and people start going on the stage. Where is everybody? <laughs> well, why are you asking the people who are there that they turned up mm. the people that you want to yell at aren't there. Mm. So don't go on the stage and start bitching about the fact that almost nobody's in the crowd. I don't care if it's two people or 2000 play the same show because whoever turned up and paid deserves a good show. Mm. And it's, it's hard to do it. That's one of the hardest things is going out and playing to a damn near empty room. That's mm. very difficult.
But that's what separates professionals from amateurs, in my view, is can you go out and play the same show no matter how many people are there? Mm -hmm. Or just pick the three or four people who are into it. You know, mm -hmm. that's the other hard thing. When you got an audience and nine-tenths of the, if you're a support band, say, and nine-tenths of the crowd don't mm -hmm. really, they didn't come to see you. They don't care nothing about you. They're just talking. Well, if they're talking, don't start yelling at them and say, shut up. I'm talking here. Do something interesting enough to make them stop. Mm -hmm. If you can't make them stop talking, then maybe you need to get your game up. Mm. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on stage? The hell, I'll be honest. Uh, what the Italians call a dressed fart. Oh. When you think oh. it's going to be gas, but it ain't. Oh. <laughs> oh, John. Oh. That happened oh. to me once on stage in Lexington, Kentucky, an event you called the dame. I walked up on the stage, and I was just about ready to count off the first song, and I thought I was going to do a cheeky little one-cheek sneak, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> And the house music's coming down, the lights are coming up, and I'm like, I'll be right back. And it was one of those venues where there wasn't even a backstage toilet. You had to walk down through the crowd into the public toilet. I walk into there, I just pushed somebody out of the way, walked into the, the, the toilet stall, you know, mm. where they had the commode, not the urinal place, and there's no damn loo roll. Oh. So I'm oh. like, well, goodbye socks, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And just threw everything in the corner, wadded up, walked back on stage freeballing, you know, and just thought, mm. well, got to get through the set. Mm. At what point does the sort of cohesion of the band become more important than like sparing some of these feelings? Like if you have to say, look, man, it's not working out. Like, how, how do you sort of end up making that decision? Well, you, yeah, you got to try to put yourself, uh, your personality out, out of it and think about what is or is not serving the show. Mm. Um, so if you got somebody who's drinking too much and turning up drunk for the gigs, they're not respecting the show. Mm. And so they're taken away from it, no matter how good of a player they are when they're sober, for just for example. Mm. Or if you got somebody whose attitude is just unbalancing everybody else in the group so much that everybody's asked up on stage the whole time they're trying to play, you have to take a, a, a sort of a, yeah, a, from a third party perspective approach to it and be, be an efficiency expert once in a while and just say, you know, it's not personal. Everybody's there to create and deliver the show. Mm -hmm. And so whatever is detracting from delivering the show, if it can't be fixed, if you have a discussion about it and you can't fix it, you got to move on down the road because the show has to win at mm -hmm. the end of the day, not any individual person's vision or any individual person's ego or whatnot. But at the end of the day, the product coming off the stage has to be the best it can be. So, yeah, if you got somebody who's consistently detracting from that, that's the way I would tell them is, look, you're not delivering the show properly, mm. you know, or whatever it is that's going on is, is, is detracting from, from what we're trying to deliver, you know, the product here. So yeah, that, that's the way I would view it. Not you're an asshole or, mm. you know, that, that's no point in being personal about it. You, mm. but you, that's you know, what you don't want to do. You want to try to separate being personal, mm. which is, yeah, yeah. A difficult thing to do. And the more people you have involved, the more difficult it becomes, mm. you know, six piece bands are a lot harder to run than four piece bands. Usually there's one or two dudes in a group, usually two, mm. that kind of do all the heavy lifting and everybody else just kind of turns up and plays. So, yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of bands out there that are marketed as bands that are not actually bands as far as their internal structure. Mm. There's usually one or two guys that kind of own it and run it and then everybody else kind of turns up. People love the idea that we're all a merry band of brothers going down the road, but 
that's not in reality how it usually works out. Yeah, There's usually like a, one or two people who kind of shoulder yeah. most of the burden. Just like when I was talking about it being preferable not to roll down the road in a bus and have to make a group consensus decision about every little thing. Mm-hmm. If you got to get group consensus decision about everything to do with delivering a show, it's going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. There always have to be chiefs and Indians. If you got all chiefs and no Indians, you can't get anything done, mm-hmm. you know, because you're just going to spend the whole time deliberating over what should we do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, deliberation's got its purpose, but at the end of the day, you got to take action, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is easier to do if you sort of have a chain of command. Mm. And everybody's comfortable with that. And somebody who's a good leader knows how to delegate responsibility and how to, you know, incorporate people's good ideas and not try to do it all themselves. Mm. That's just in any business, whether you're trying to run a coffee shop or whatever you're doing, you know, just because you're the guy who owns the business doesn't mean that you're in there you know, telling everybody how it's going to be dictator style because you won't keep good people if you do that. You know, my people respond to incentives, but I just mean as far as how you're structured in business, it's probably better to not structure it as a five-way partnership just because it's probably not going to actually pan out like that. Mm. It's probably better for the people who sort of have the vision to, to set it up and then kind of hire people to do the stuff they can't do, you know, mm. like play bass while they're playing guitar or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Is there anything that you would... If you, if you could, would you tell your younger self that you wish somebody had told you? Not every girl that you have sex with is going to fall in love with you. It's very important <laughs> to figure that out early. Yeah. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> and life is too short to drink bad booze. If somebody hands you a beer you don't like, just set it down in the corner. And when they bring all the shot trays up to the stage, just sit them in front of the monitor wedge and kick them over. Mm. If you start drinking shots on stage, man, five different kinds of liquor, you won't get through the show. Mm. Now, or, or you won't be able to sing the next day. It'll be very horizontal very quickly. Yeah, well, you got to be thinking about when you're on tour or two, pacing yourself. Don't make the late surge early. That's what mm. I would say. <laughs> well, thanks for coming, John. Hey, it's been man, very, very I fucking informative. Some of what I've said is useful to somebody who's out there. And I feel like I've learned something, so, well, you know. <laughs> it's all stuff I had to kind of figure out by following my nose. So. What an amazing interview that was, right? I said it would be good and it was. So there's that. I'm just gonna reiterate a few links. If you haven't heard of Hasey Dixie or John Wheeler, do check out Hasey Dixie. Their covers are incredible. They were one of my favorite comedy bands growing up and I'm really lucky to have got to meet John a handful of times and I really value his expertise. We still, well, I I was gonna say we still catch up in the pub every now and again, but um, pubs don't really exist anymore, do they? I look forward to catching up with John whenever the pubs reopen. How's that? Check out Hazy Dixie wherever you listen to your music. Please do leave us a positive review on whatever podcast app you are using to listen to this show now. If you have money and you want to share, that's gross, isn't it? If you are lucky enough to have money, please do check out ko-fi.com forward slash ltguitarist, ko-fi.com forward slash ltguitarist to literally buy me a coffee or guitar strings. And if you want more information on me, ltguitarist.com. I've been Liam Taylor, and I do hope that I will continue to be Liam Taylor for some time. Bye.